Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Modern Horse Training, A Constructional Guide to Becoming Your Horse's Best Friend, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I've just recently published a new book, a children's book, called Teddy's to the Rescue. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. In August, we indulged in a lengthy conversation with Dr. Claire St. Peter. Claire is a behavioral analyst. She teaches at West Virginia University, where she has recently taken on a new role. She is now chair of the Department of Behavioral Analysis. This is the fifth and final part of our conversation with Claire. We've been going down in the weeds as we consider the definitions of words both trainers and behavioral analysts use on a regular basis. We began in part one by asking, what is shaping? Last week, we asked, what is behavior? And now we're going to ask, what do we mean by environment? I'm going to ramble for a moment to give you time to consider how you would answer this question. I don't want to give anyone test anxiety, but suppose you were sitting an exam in a beginning course on behavioral analysis. Or if you want to be more ambitious, suppose you were taking an exam at graduate level seminar. The first question on the exam is define environment. How would you answer that question? It turns out if you left the question blank, you would not be alone. So we have behavior, and there is the relationship with the environment. So what is environment? Yeah, don't ask. Do you know I cannot find a definition of environment in any behavior analysis textbook? It does not surprise me. I cannot find one. We just always assume, we assume that we know what it means, right? It's really interesting. So this is, so Taylor emailed me and was like, I need, I need to know how a behavior analyst defines environment. And I was like, yeah, sure. Hang on. Let me pull a couple of textbooks. That should be easy. (laughs) And get, and get right back to you. Hmm. I think this was like a month ago. And so I looked at every textbook on my shelf and I cannot find a definition of environment. And it got so bad um, that I recruited all of my friends and said, well, not all of them. I recruited the ones that are here and said, like, do you have, give me, look at your textbooks. No one could find one. So then I went back and I have a handful of one of my colleagues shared with me PDF versions of Skinner's early books. So they're searchable, right? So like I could, I could control F environment and try to figure out how Skinner talked about environment or like if he defined the term anywhere. Can't find it. Just talks about environment. Like off we go. We obviously know what this is. This really critical piece about what we do. Yeah. And that, and that gets really, really misinterpreted, I think sometimes. And I think back to a science camp where somebody was like, why are you talking about environment? And, you know, like yeah. you talking about pollution or, right. or what? Right. And, or, now, and Dominique, like, if you pull out that book and you find a definition of environment, I'm going to fall straight out of my chair. Okay. <laughs> Let me and just then, look quick, quick, and, quick. And, and when we, I you know, we talk about it. 
you know, we're part of the environment and that throws a lot of people because you think of environment as, well, yeah, the table and the the table, you know, I'm not a table. What are you saying? I'm, I'm, I'm some sort of table. Let's not be insulting here. It's bad enough that you're, that you're pretending that plants behave and now you're telling me I'm a table. Yeah. Yeah. So well, in, in Paul Chance's book, there's a glossary at the end and there's no environment. Well, see, that makes me feel better about my searching <laughs> skills. Let me look at David Pierce, because usually, you know, Susan Friedman always tell me, when you don't find it in Paul Chance, go into Pierce. I don't know um, if they have a glossary, though. Do they? They must. Oh, I forget where I was going with that. But yeah, so it was, it's just been amazing that it's not... Yeah. It's not anywhere. I can't find it anywhere. Environment um, in, in David, Pierce, David Pierce called Chini Behavior Analysis and Learning. So you have a newer edition than I do. Well, oh, not well, in the glossary, though. It's in the, yeah, but see, is the, there a definition? In the glossary, environment. In, the functional oh. environment is all of the events and stimuli that affect the behavior of an organism. This includes events inside the skin, such as thinking, hormonal changes, and pain stimulation. Well, good for them. So we'll figure out who has. I only have an old version of that. That's the new Pearson Cheney. Well, uh, fifth edition. Yeah. But it's well, I should fall right out of my chair then, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you like that? The functional environment is all of the events and stimuli that affect the behavior of an organism. All the events and stimuli. Does that help? Well, it, it gets you back to your four-year-old question though, right? Like, so it means that, so here's things that I like about it. It means that my environment is different from your environment, is different from my dog's environment, is different from my horse's environment even when we are physically in the same space. space. Yes. So I how like do you, that. How do you read that? Because they say the functional environment? Mm-hmm. Where do you see this? Because all, the, all of the events and stimuli that affect the behavior of an organism. Right. So if you think about a dog's ability to smell compared with our ability to smell, when a dog is sitting in the same room that you are, that is an entirely different experience space from the space that you are inhabiting. And the the bee that has flown in from the window and detects a completely different range of light than we can detect and has and picks up very different vibrations, what we would call hearing, is completely different. I think. The fact that he says the function, or they say, the functional environment is very important. Mm-hmm. Right. But the functional in- environment, you know, the events that's, that affect the behavior, meaning if there's something in my environment, in my dog's environment, that we're in the same environment, but something doesn't affect my behavior, but it does affect his behavior, Right. Then so we, we're not in the same functional environment. Right. We can be in the same physical space, both in the same room, but we are in very different environments. Mm-hmm. 
it trips my undergraduates up when I talk about identical twins being raised in different environments. And they think like, oh, in different households. And I'm like, no, every human is in a different environment. Yeah. Right. Because Mm -hmm. if I'm an identical twin, my twin is in my environment and I'm in their environment and therefore we're in different environments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So That's and the environment in, in my skin, inside my skin, right. Am I, am I hungry? Am I tired is different from the environment inside my identical twin skin. So we have actually very wildly different environments, same household, same. Well, birthday, you see that everything. a lot in families, even if you're not twins I mean you see brothers and sisters who have such different paths in life yet they mm-hmm. had the same upbringing mm-hmm. I think the the twins example always resonates with me because it's mm. the same gene you know same yeah, genes yeah. same yeah, yeah, yeah. everybody same says age, like well, unless they're unless same they're day. raised yeah they were in the same year same age yeah, yeah. we usually assume that when we're talking about the being in different environments it is what you're undergraduates are thinking oh they were separated mm-hmm. when they were little it's like they they were separated the moment they were born before they were born before uh, they were born before they were born yeah yeah so that's that's an interesting definition of environment so here's a question for you with that definition of environment if my horse is new to clicker training and the click does not disrupt their behavior, nor does it function as an effective marker signal yet. Yes. Is it part of their environment? No. Interesting question. They are hearing. It's not part of their functional environment yet. They hear it. They sense it. They detect it. But if. Right. if but it has no function. Correct. So it's kind of insignificant. So the interesting thing about that definition of environment is that you cannot have an environment without a behavior. Yes, that's right. It's part of the definition. You cannot have an environment without a behavior. So I will, you know, like right now I am sitting at a computer and right here, there is a cork board that has a bunch of pieces of paper on it. Until right now, I was not behaving in relation to those pieces of paper. And so one might argue that they were not part of my environment until I said, I have a cork board right here. Mm -hmm. And now I'm behaving in relation to them. So now they're part of my environment, but they weren't before. Mm. So then your environment becomes linked to your behavior. And until you have a behavior, you can't have an environment. Wow. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. And we, we filter out so much. But we were just saying how much we love the behavior environment part of the behavior definition, that it's so key to have that relation. So in a way, it's good that it is also in the environment definition. It makes sense. But then we get to the, like, the distraction training where you work with your horse so that the lawnmower can go right next to and the horse is fine with that but you when you start that training very often you'll start where it's almost undetectable and has no effect on their behavior and you'll decrease the distance i don't know if that but so why, why does it make sense to us that behavior cannot happen without 
environment, but it seems more difficult to buy that environment cannot exist without behavior. Is that what we're saying? I think that that's what that definition implies. And if it's a functional no environment, environment, it has to function upon something. And Otherwise, there's no environment for that organism. I don't know. <laughs> hmm. It's like the dead environment test. Ooh, what's that yes. test? The dead <laughs> I just made it up, but it's, okay, the, opposite good... of the, it's the opposite right. of the dead person test. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the dead environment. If you don't have behavior, then you can't have an environment, I guess. It's the, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody is there to hear it, does it make a sound? Right. Ooh. Yeah. That. Yeah. We're getting pretty geeky, aren't we? Oh, you say getting like it hasn't already <laughs> happened. Right. And, and then how does this help us in the real world? Well, I can tell you that between the definition of behavior, the very simple one versus the more, the richer one, I think there's a world of difference as a trainer for all the reasons Claire already explained, you know, with the rescue horses, the relation with the environment. I mean, mm -hmm. can guide so many decisions. So the richness of, and yeah, sometimes it's complicated, but it's helpful. That's how I see schedules. I know that it can be complicated, but I think they're helpful. I wonder if the environment piece, if value to thinking about there's not environment without behavior for which that environment functions has a role in environmental enrichment in the way that you think about environmental enrichment. So environmental enrichment, it's not, I put a jolly ball in my horse's yes, stall. That's a good so point. therefore I have enriched the environment. If your horse doesn't know what to do with that jolly ball. Or right, no longer it, interacts with it. Right. It might as well be a piece of the wall. Yeah. Then you, you actually haven't changed the environment unless you've also built the behavior that would allow that learner that horse that dog that zoo animal to meaningfully functionally interact with that component of the yes. environment yes that's a good point good example so it, it's not that the walls of my house do not exist until i go over and you know bang a nail into them or something it, it is that functional piece yeah so the jolly ball can exist in the stall and be completely ignored by the horse because they do not have in repertoire a way of interacting with that jolly ball. But once they do, then it becomes a meaningful part of their environment. Mm -hmm. I think out. that would be an implication of that definition yeah. that would yeah. relate to something else. But it's in funny that when they, so they, in the glossary, there's the word environment, but then the definitions start by the functional environment. So it's not exactly, you know, they're not defining just the word environment. They felt the necessity, the, the need to add the functional so, environment. Right. They've created mm -hmm. a subset. Yeah. But it's the subset that becomes meaningful. So, yeah. Does it matter if the wind is blowing, not blowing, still day, windy day, gale force winds, if your horse is ignoring completely changes in wind velocity, 
it's not a functional part of the environment that you need to take into consideration in your training. You might want to sensitize a horse to a particular aspect of the environment, right? Like, so I might want to sensitize a horse to rope handling, particularly if they're a crossover horse, right? Like I might want, I might want this lead rope to mean something to you different from what it's meant before, or I might want to desensitize a horse. Like I might want to take a piece of the structural environment out of the functional environment, right? So the lawnmowers, the wind, all of these pieces that are structurally there, but I don't want to be functionally there. And I could train either way. Yes. You know, there was a, a big storm this weekend here and I, for so many years, I love storms, summer storms, except when they're followed by a electricity outage. But all the years I had dogs, I did not like storms anymore. And, you know, I would just, I would not like fireworks. I would not like storms. And now all my dogs are dead. And so I was alone in the house. There was this summer storm and it was like, so beautiful you know it was like this sound and light show in front of me I loved it same environment but you know completely different experience for me because you know the dogs were no longer afraid I didn't have to tend to the dogs so for sure the environment can you know the function of it will change but I don't know how you would analyze this but well, before I think the the oncoming storm was what we would call a warning signal, right? So it's the same kind of thing as when we flash lights in a operant chamber before something terrible is going to happen, shock. right? Mm-hmm. And then the the rat or the pigeon will react to the lights differently than if we use those same lights and pair them with reinforcers, right? Then. Yeah. You can and change those things the function. can change. Yeah, those things yeah, you can, can change. change. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can reverse it. You can. Mm-hmm. Neat. So we'll have to have to go through all of the definitions and say, hmm, this is the definition that is full of wonderful nuance that is important. But is it where we can begin? Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the other piece is like, how do you keep people engaged enough that they get there's value in all that nuance, right? And like, how do you keep people engaged enough that they get there eventually? And then how, once you're there, I think one of the barriers for behavior analysts, myself included, is that once you're there and you see all the nuance, how do you step back out and not have every answer be so laden with the thousand bits of it depends Mm -hmm. nuance that people throw their hands up and say, this is too complicated. I can't get it, you know, and being okay with this answer is not entirely complete Yes, or doesn't have all the richness that I would love to share with you because there's so much value and richness in what we could talk about with this, but it's the answer that you need and that you're ready for right now. Mm -hmm. It's a stair step. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if we recognize it as, I'm building the repertoire that will take you to an appreciation of the nuance and the ability to understand the nuance, then that is completely different from, well, I'm just dumbing this down for you. Mm -hmm. 
Sometimes it's good to have a glimpse of the nuances down the road. But it's how do I get you started Mm. so that you can appreciate the nuance? It's like the... How do I maintain you on a good enough schedule that you'll (laughs) hang in there? (laughs) You'd think we should know how to do this. (laughs) Behavior analysts. (laughs) But we don't. So, you know, it's like the body awareness. When I start talking about in the clinics, we're going to do a body awareness exploration. And Dominique, you go, no, no, because <laughs> that doesn't resonate with you for whatever reason. Well, yeah, but I know there's value in it. So I always stay open to it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's this building, because the nuance is wonderfully interesting and it has great value. So how do you gain this? It's how do you gain an appreciation for balance? How do you gain an appreciation for nuance? What are the stair steps, the repertoire that we need to put into place? So this becomes something that people actively seek out. One of the programs that I use the most on my computer is the dictionary. Mm. Now that I'm constantly pulling up the dictionary on my computer. And really looking at, all right, what's the beginning step for how that word is used, how it's defined? And I'm just being lazy because I use the computer instead of going to the good dictionaries, the the older ones that have more fun because they have all the derivations and so on. But it's that same building that love of deeper meaning. You know, I think you're pretty good at that, Alex, because I remember when I first started all the rope handling detail was certainly not what I was seeking, right. what I was really looking forward to. <laughs> now I'm really seeking rope handling yeah. details. I'm looking forward to, I want to eat it up. And it was for me, it was like lots of details. Yeah. So maybe one day when you say body awareness, I'll get <laughs> all excited. And want to do yeah. body awareness. <laughs> right. Because it is definitely part of rope handling. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, I, because I've seen the progress and the value in all your details, I am always keeping an open mind that yeah. one day body awareness will get me really excited <laughs> and that I will be seeking it. Yes. But it's interesting to think about how some of these change over time too, right? So we were talking about the definition of behavior before, and the root of behavior is a Latin word that means to hold or to have. It's the same root that is What is habit. it, the root? How do you spell Habir, it? Habere, H-A-B-E-R-E, H-A-B-E-R-E. It's yeah. the same root as habit, inhibit, and ability. Oh. To hold, to hold back, to restrain, to have, and meant the original meaning of it was how one holds one's, the B was a reflexive from Old English, so how one holds oneself. Okay, yeah. Right, so with a sense of like this is how you comport yourself or this is how you this is exactly um, in french yourself yeah this is in french this is exactly what it means how you yeah how you carry yourself how you yeah but that is not how we're using it now that's right and isn't it interesting how across 
languages that has changed over time. And I think when you talk about that as the origin of the word behavior, even in English, people go like, well, that doesn't capture the the, the way that that behavior yeah. is, yeah, use the way that that word is used in contemporary times. And so then, you know, it's, it's an interesting, there's friends of mine who study language and verbal behavior from a behavior analytic perspective. Like what are the contingencies that result in some communities starting to use words different in different ways than mm-hmm. other communities? And what impact does that have down the line on how you see the world? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then, and, and how do some of those definitions get drawn into the mainstream mm-hmm. so that you get a major shift in thinking? That's a fascinating field of study. Yeah. So the takeaway from some of this is we have to be careful how we use the words that we use. And when we talk with other people, we have to take the time to define what we're saying so we are making ourselves clear and not just assume that because we're using English words that we are making sense. And that the way that we use these words, it's a shaping process. So how we understand the words is going to change over time. Mm. The definitions are going to change over time and need to be revisited periodically. And we need to consider if the words that we have been using need to be shifted to some other word because the the definitions have evolved and changed so much, or some other community has taken over those words and created confusion, Mm -hmm. which happens. So, you know, how can we be the clearest that we, possibly can and when you see the eyes glazing over (laughs) you know that oh I need I need more words or fewer words or different words to define what it is that I'm talking about and not just assume that you know what I'm talking about and and keep going well and I think to meet people where they're at and figure out how much they need to know about the way that you're using the word too What is in well, there? I think too that one important part is that we don't. What I like about people like you, Claire and Joe, and is that because we're interested, we're interested in all this stuff, and we're not getting punished if we are not quite using it properly, if we're confused a little bit, and that will keep us coming back. I think. Otherwise, we'll just avoid complexity, won't go near it just in case we say something or that is not quite right. So I think it's important to be able to be exposed to it, play with it, talk about it, ask questions and not be punished for curiosity. I think it's it's a nice bi-directional conversation, too, because you get to say, like, why do I use why do I use the word that way? You're like, mm-hmm. why have I been thinking about that? Is that a useful way to think about it? What's a good way to explain that? Does that make sense? You know, are requirements and criteria the same? Am I actually using those words as synonyms or am I not using those words as synonyms? Is there nuance there that's worth exploring? Or kind of go like, yeah, you know, use this, say whatever you want to say. <laughs> I spend a lot of my time talking to people who speak the same language that I do. 
And when you spend a lot of time talking to people who speak the same language that you do, you don't always spend a lot of time thinking about why are we talking the way that we're talking or, you know, how does this relate to something else? Or is there an implication of talking about this this way for this other thing? So it's fun to think about all of that and to realize that like, we don't have a behavior analyst who studies behavior and environment. And I don't, maybe I don't know what either of those things are. (laughs) Maybe I don't know what behavior is. Yeah, maybe I don't know what either behavior or environment is. It's really interesting. I like the Speaking of Immense Worlds book. I really like the Umwelt definition. I hadn't been exposed to that before. So they talk about how the, do you remember who, who the person was? I'm blanking on the name at the moment. No. But there was oh. a, there was a German scholar who came up with this idea of Umwelt as the environment definition and it 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 took into account kind of this idea of functional environments and what a particular organism could or couldn't sense or could or couldn't react to and I was like oh I like that that's a it fits with my approach to things so it's a that it was a fascinating book because on two levels one is how clever we can be in figuring out how how the world works. You know, you, when you have the capabilities that animals have that we cannot perceive, that we cannot directly perceive, and yet we've figured out what they are able to perceive. And then just, it's just extraordinary, extraordinary what other organisms are able to perceive in the environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, no, it's we need to be humble. Yeah, and well, and therefore react to and behave around, right? And and yeah. to what extent does that become part of contingencies that we're not thinking about? It's like, oh, well, when I walk, when I walk down this trail and it smells like other horses, right? Like I yeah. see very distinct behavior of my trail horses when I go down a trail and I've been down that trail with another one of my herd members earlier that day or I go down the trail and we're the first ones down the trail, yeah. you know, after a big rainstorm and you go like, well, that's something in your, and I would never be able to detect what you're detecting out of this, but mm. we get different yeah. behavior out of it. That's right. They certainly can detect it. And who knows what else they can detect. Mm-hmm. Well, walking with a dog, I mean, all the scents are, yeah. you know, we have no idea. We, we know after a few walks where they'll stop, but, you know, they, we don't perceive any of that. And it's a big deal for them. It's the whole mm-hmm. point of the walk. That's right. Yeah, they're going on a smell. Yeah, they're not, not going, going on, on a walk. walk. That's a great way of phrasing it. They're mm-hmm. going on a smell. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a charming note on which to say thank you. Well, I'm sorry that I kept you all so much No, don't apologize. I love that. Yeah, that was an extra hour of fun. Yeah, Yeah. there's no apology needed, none at all. But I'm seeing the light change behind you. Yes. Yes. So I'm figuring that you probably need to get going yourself because you have horses waiting. I do. I do. So, So, yes, always a pleasure, though. Really, really great. So great, great afternoon. 
hope you've enjoyed this five-part series with Dr. Claire St. Peter. Claire, Dominique, and I, we all enjoy words, and we all enjoy nuance. So for us, this was a wonderful afternoon. Hopefully, we've made it a little easier for all of us to talk to one another and to be understood more clearly. Most especially, I hope this helps us to talk to our horses, which is what this is really all about. I always encourage you, when you order my books, to leave five-star reviews on Amazon. I'll ask you to do the same for these podcasts. If you enjoy these conversations, and especially if you enjoy these conversations that we have with people like Dr. Claire St. Peter, do please leave a review with your podcast provider, and do share the podcast with your friends. That is always appreciated. This is a podcast about all things equine, but as you've heard, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, we talk about a huge range of subjects. Everything is truly connected to everything else. So next time, we're going to begin a new conversation. And until then, train well and have fun with your horses. Thank you.